Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Um, Mike is, oh, just kidding. Here I am again. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, oh, stop. Stop. No, don't stop. Don't stop. Um, just kidding. Uh, welcome. My name is Joe, as Justin said, Associate Minister here at Real Life, and, uh, and I'm excited to be here with you. And before we begin, um, everybody got their Christmas set up in the house? We good? Everybody, anybody not have their stuff set up? There's a few of you. All right. We need to get in Christmas spirit here. Um, we, in our house, the Oliver household, we, we do it a little bit early. We get started uh, right after Thanksgiving. Big tradition in our house to get everything set up. Uh, one of my favorite times of the year. In fact, I like it more than like even Christmas Day because my kids are older. I've got uh, a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old, and, uh, and as they've just gotten older and they're starting to move on in their lives, I'm cherishing uh, more and more the times that we come together. Uh, and, uh, and so, excuse me, I'm choking up. Uh, no, I just swallowed them. I feel weird. Um, uh, I've really cherished this time because uh, we spend a whole day, we get all the decorations out, uh, we put the Christmas music on, we set up the tree, set up all the decorations, we end the night, we watch a Christmas movie, we have a big dinner, then we watch the first Christmas movie. Uh, it's just a big deal. We really, really do enjoy it, and it's a lot of fun. And this year, um, uh, my wife was telling me this the other day, when we were setting up uh, Christmas, and we have all the different things out, we have a, na a nativity set scene. Uh, anybody got those? We've got one. Uh, and we set it up in front of the TV, and it's just, you know, this nice, all the figurines and things like that. My son's setting it up. She tells me that my, as my son was setting it up, uh, she tur he turns and says, uh, this is not canonically correct. Two things. Two things. One, I love the fact that he knows what canonical means. And two, the fact that he's drawing attention to, yeah, this isn't maybe as historically accurate as we may think or assume that it is. And, uh, you know, this nativity scene, you've got all the figurines out there, and little baby Jesus is, you know, sometimes in a little, you know, uh, a little basket and hay and stuff, and, uh, and you've got all the animals around, and, and then you've got the wise men there. And, uh, you know, and this is kind of where we get into tradition. Like, it's not a bad thing. We have it. We love it. We get the point. But, uh, uh you know, a historically correct nativity scene would not have the Magi there. Uh, uh, Matthew tells us that they came when he uh, came to his home, uh, which is an indication they had moved on from where the place of birth was, and uh, he was a boy. And so uh, he was of some younger age when they came to visit him. And, uh, and you know, these are just the little details, right? They really don't matter, but um, I love the fact my son drew that out. And, uh, and we've been talking about this uh, uh, for this Christmas season. Our series is on the king, uh, and we've been exploring the gifts that the Magi had brought Jesus. Uh, now, when we read our Bible, sometimes we read the Christmas story and we just kind of move through it really quickly. Like, you know, we just get to the point, uh, uh, you know, of the birth and we talk about it, but we, we sometimes just paint it in broad strokes and we don't ask a lot of questions. And, uh, and I'm someone who, when I read the text, or I'm telling someone who's trying to read the text, you need to read slow. Sometimes we read too fast when we read our Bibles. We need to take our time, and we need to ask good questions. We need to be curious about the text. And so questions that I ask when I read uh, this Matthew story, Matthew chapter 2, I ask, why does Matthew tell us that wise men came? Because no other gospel tells us that. Matthew's the only gospel that tells us that the wise men even came to visit Jesus. Jesus. 
So why does he give us that detail and the other gospel writer doesn't? That's an interesting question. Then another question arises, why naming the three gifts? Why does Matthew tell us that there are three gifts? Why does he tell us the names of the gifts? These are good questions. Why? Why this detail? Again, Matthew's the only one that tells us this information. So why does he have a reason and a purpose? And so we've been exploring a little bit of what we can learn from these, these gifts. And Justin did a uh, fantastic job talking about uh, the gifts that we can bring Jesus, looking at the gift of gold, uh, the gift for a king, and, uh, and, and really exploring what, what can we give to Jesus. And, and that's a great question that we should ask at all different stages of our lives. What kind of gift am I bringing Jesus? Because depending on the stage you're in, that gift may change. Uh, uh, that you're able to offer, but we should always be exploring in our hearts what is it that I can bring to Jesus as a gift. Uh, and, and so that challenge was, was put in front of us, and I encourage you to continue to explore what that may look like in your life and in, in the weeks and, and even years to come. We should always be asking that question. But he talked about the gift of gold, and the gift of gold is a gift for a king, and he's exactly right. But the thing about Jesus is that he's not simply our king. He's what scripture calls our priestly king, our priestly king. You see, Jesus had a dual identity or, or title that was placed upon him as the priest king. And this idea comes from a prophecy that was given long ago. In fact, it's recorded in Psalms 110. David gives a prophecy about a future person who's going to come and, and, and take on the role and title of a priest king. And it says this in Psalm 110. This is David writing. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem. You will rule over your enemies. When you go to war, your people will serve you willingly. You are arrayed in holy garments, and your strength will be renewed each day like the morning dew. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's three important details to this, this, this uh, psalm that David provides for us. The, the first part is the opening statement. The Lord said to my Lord. Now, what is David doing here? Okay, so David is in a, in a place of kingship over Israel. And he's writing this psalm. The Lord, meaning the, the king God, said to my Lord. Which means that David is referring to someone who is above him in like, you know, pay grade, you know, like someone's above him, but there is a chief Lord who's speaking to David's Lord. So David's not talking about himself. And so the king Lord says to this Lord two important things. One, you are going to rule a kingdom, which is what a king does, and that you will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we do not have the time, unless y'all want to be here for the next three hours to unpack Melchizedek, but we're going to move on from that. The idea here is that this is a prophecy about someone who's going to come to Israel that's greater than David that will become a priest-king by vocational role, right? It's going to hold two things at one time. He is our priest-king. And so, yes, he is our king, but he's also our priest-king king from the line 
of David. And if Jesus, well, and so the prophecy and the fulfillment of the prophecy, the gospel writers believe that to be Jesus, that Jesus embraced this role as the priest king. And if Jesus is a priest, every priest has a temple that they minister in. Every priest has a temple. And for the ancient Israelites, in the time of the Exodus, it was called a tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was a dwelling place. It was like a mobile home for God, okay? Um, it was a place where God would reside, but it was a traveling place until later on, uh, at the time of Solomon and David and Solomon, they would build a physical temple, uh, and that's what we have, you know, the temple of Solomon, and then after it was destroyed, it was rebuilt, and uh, at the time of Jesus, it was the Herodian temple, uh, and, uh, but before it was a physical location, it was a tabernacle. It was a mobile tent that would move from place to place to place. And so this is coming out of Egypt. The Israelites are brought to a big mountain, Mount Sinai. God shows up on the mountain, begins to speak to Moses about all the things he's asking of these people to, to be and do and to embrace. And one of those things is that they build a tabernacle, a place for God wherever they go, because they weren't supposed to be at the temple forever. Like that wasn't their final destination. They were to inhabit a land. And so as they move uh, from place to place, they would tear down this tabernacle and they would set it back up at the new place and they'd stay there for a while and they would tear it down. They would set it up. So it was like a mobile home where God could be with them everywhere they go. And it was called the tabernacle. Now, you're probably wondering like, Joe, I have no idea where you're going with this. We're talking tabernacle now. Um, it's supposed to be Christmas and I'm just asking you to stay with me. We're gonna get a little teach heavy and to help you I provided a little answer key on the back of your notes, okay? So in the back of your notes, you have a little outline of the, what the tabernacle is with some fill in the blanks, okay? To keep you engaged. I can give you fill in blanks so you don't gloss over here, okay? Because we're gonna throw some information at you, right? So you can use this to fill in the blanks uh, in the back of your notes, but we're gonna unpack what this tabernacle was uh, and some of the key features about the tabernacle. Then we're gonna look back and see what does that have to do with Matthew chapter two, okay? So, the tabernacle. Um, so, the instructions, and you get this all in the middle of Exodus, a bunch of chapters in the middle of Exodus, you get the explanation of what they're supposed to do. So, the first part of the tabernacle was this perimeter that they would create. Okay, so it served as a perimeter. It had posts in the ground, and then they would have fabric that would lay over the, you know, they would string it up there. And so it created this outline, this rectangular perimeter, and it had an entry place at the front. Okay, so an opening so that people could go in and out. And that, that perimeter, the circumference of this perimeter was called the outer courts. What they, they labeled it as the outer courts. It's all this area called the outer courts. And then the Israelites were commanded that they were to camp around this, this uh, tabernacle that they would create. So they would set up all their tents all the way around it because the tabernacle served as the central focal point of their, of their community. God's temple, his tabernacle, was the central point of their community. And so they would tent all around it. Now, that outer courts had three things inside of it. The outer courts contained three things. Um, it contained a altar that they would make sacrifices on, and it contained a water basin that they would purify themselves and wash and get ready for whatever sacrifice or going um, into the most holy place. And so it had those two items right at the center in the front, and, and, and there were certain things that they needed to do with those. Then there was another tent inside the tent, 
which was um, another area that was rectangular in nature. And this was called the most holy place or the holy place. Okay, And so you had the bronze uh, wash basin, the bronze altar, and then you had a tent structure in the middle that was called the holy place. When you zoom into the holy place, you've got a few other things happening here. So you have the holy place here. There were two curtains, one at the front and then one about three quarters of the way back. So you had these two segmented areas. Now there's a curtain in the front so that people can't just walk into the holy place because this is a place that only the priests can go, okay? So not everybody goes. Outer courts, Israelites could come in and out. They could engage. The holy place, only the priests can go, okay? So they had a curtain there blocking that off. But then there was another curtain about three quarters of the way in called the veil, the veil. And that was an important curtain. And we'll get back to that in a second. So in the front end of the holy place, you have three items that sit inside of that. It's the table of showbread, which is a long table that has loaves of bread that were baked and put out and that served as a, as a, um, a symbolic way of saying that God always provides God's always providing. And so there's an interesting story um, about David when he's on the run from Saul and, and he goes in and he's, he's famished, he's hungry, and, they, and the priest gives him the bread off of this table. It's a big no-no, you're not supposed to touch it. Uh, and so it's a big kind of thing about what, da what David's doing there. But that's the table of showbread. There was a candlestick called the menorah that would sit in there as well and they would light, the, the priest would light this and it would provide light in the room. So when they're performing their duties uh, that they're supposed to do every day uh, they could see and then there was right in front of the veil there was the altar of incense the altar of incense and we'll get into that in a second and that stood right in front of the veil now on the other side of the veil or this side, the other side of the veil um, uh, there was this was called the holy of holies or the most holy place okay anybody heard that word holy of holies before Maybe a few of you. All right, this is why we're going through this. Maybe y'all don't know this. Um, but this is, this, it was called the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you've been in church, maybe you've heard that before, the Ark of the Covenant. It was this box that uh, had cherubim on top, and it, was, it represented God's throne, God's throne. Or more accurately, his footstool. Because God was viewed to sit above the earth, but his feet was in it, and his feet resided on, on the Ark of the Covenant, or, or the, the top of it was called the mercy seat. And that's where God was. So God's like literal presence would reside. So that's why they had another veil in front of the Holy, Holy of Holy, or in front of the Ark, because it was the, it was the present, the literal presence of God. God would come and reside in, 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 in his full reality and glory. And this was dangerous. This was dangerous. Because if you were to see or be in the presence of God, you would die because of our lack of holiness lack of righteousness, right? So this was, this was a very special area. So that was, um, and, and so this is kind of what it looks like. If you got your notes up here, right? You've got the bronze altar, uh, the bronze wash basin, the table of showbread, lampstand, altar of incense, veil, Ark of the Covenant. You can see the rest. So that's, that's the tabernacle. And they would tear it down and they would set it up, you know, tear it down, move, get to a place, set it up, and God would show up and they would perform all their duties. Now, I want to focus in on this altar of incense, right up here. This is, a, this is a particular item 
that um, has special significance for our conversation uh, today and special significance for our understanding of Jesus much, much later. So we have this altar of incense. This altar of incense is described in Exodus chapter 30. So if you go to a home group, your leader probably, they're, they're following along in our sermon series. You're going to read Exodus 30. Uh, uh, great chapter. But it describes that this, this altar was like 18 inches by 18 inches square. Okay? It had four horns on each, uh, a horn on each corner, four horns, and it was 36 inches high. So it was about, you know, yay high, whatever 36 inches is. But, um, and, um, and it had a couple rings on the side that you could fit poles through, and, and that was to help transport it, uh, because again, this is a mobile home for God. Um, and this altar would sit right in front. And in Exodus chapter 30, verse 10, it said that this altar... Is the, uh, is, is the most holy altar. This has a, has a title to it that's unique to any other item that you have in the tabernacle. No other item gets this kind of title. This is something special. It says, for this is the Lord's most holy altar. So this plays a significant role that sits right in front of the veil that separates the people from the Ark of the Covenant, the holiness, the presence of God, Right? And it sits right in front of it. Okay? So this um, uh, uh, altar served a very specific purpose. Um, it did two things in the tabernacle. It did two things. Um, one, every day, the priest, every day, the priest would have to go in and light incenses that the smoke would rise every day. They were commanded to go in. So like when you read uh, in the Gospels about, I think it's Luke, uh, where Zechariah goes into the temple to um, uh, perform his duties and then God speaks to him, uh, says he's gonna, Elizabeth's gonna have a child and then he, he doesn't believe and then he goes mute. If you're familiar with that story, what is he doing in the temple? He's going in to light the incense. That was the daily ritual for a priest was to go in and light the incense. And that incense smoke, you know, they'd light it up. If, you know, if you, you know, back in the day, now you have um, uh, the, uh, the, the candles that you put the light underneath and there's smokeless. I don't remember. Uh, sensi, yeah, you got the sensis now, right? It's like they're lighting a sensi, but the smokes would come up instead of the candle. Um, at any rate, I, I digress. Um, the smoke represented something was the smoke would rise, it represented the, the prayers of the people. The, 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 the incense rising was the prayers of the people rising to God, like a sweet aroma to God. He wants to hear our prayers. He wants to hear our prayers. Psalms chapter, uh, uh, David writes this in Psalms um, 141.2. He says, accept, he says, accept my prayers and incense offered to you. And my upraised hands is an evening offering. Prayer was a way to connect to the divine. And so this the incense served as a, as a symbolic nature of, of the prayers of the people. And then it did another thing. It provided protection when approaching the Lord. So it was symbolic to the prayers. The incense served, the smoke served as a prayer, but it also served as protection because in Leviticus chapter 16 and 17, we're told about a specific kind of sacrifice that only happened once a year uh, on the Day of Atonement. And this specific sacrifice, you would sacrifice a lamb, you'd take the blood of the lamb, you would sprinkle a little bit of the blood on the four corners of the altar of incense. Then the priest would take a handful of the incense, put it in a, in a jar, and then he would stick his hand 
inside the Holy of Holies because you don't go in because you're going to die if you do. And, and, he, and he, he swings it and it fills the Holy of Holies full of smoke from the incense so that when they go in to sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the day of atonement on the mercy seat, it symbolizes the forgiveness of all of Israel for all their sins, okay? So, so it served as protection so that they could enter into the Holy of Holies without risk of death. Like being a priest back then was no joke. No joke, it was dangerous. Like you could literally die in the presence of God because of the lack of your righteousness and holiness, okay? So they'd stick their arm in between the veil, shake it, spill it with smoke, and then they would go inside. This is outlined, you can see it up on the screen, Leviticus 16. Uh, and it's also the Day of Atonement talked about in Leviticus 17. You can read all about that. So it served as a, as a representation of the prayers of the people going before God and as protection for those who are entering into God's, God's presence. Now in Exodus 30, specifically, we are given the information of how to make this Incense. Have you ever read, like, you're in the Old Testament, and you're like, why am I given all these details? Like, oh my God, it's this long, and it's this wide. And can I just tell you right now, none of that, like, all of that means something. It's not just passive information. We got to slow down and ask the question, why are we being told this? Because in Exodus chapter 30, we are told how to make the incense that's going to go on the altar of incense. And it's a specific recipe. A very specific recipe. In fact, any of you who, who cook out there, do you follow recipes? Are you a good recipe follower? I see some shake, some yes and some. I'm a, like, I gotta follow it. And I'm like measuring it out. And, 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 and my wife's like, just grab it and throw it in. I'm like, I can't do that. I'm like, you know, I got the cup and I'm scraping off the top for the flour. It's gotta be perfect amount. That's what they told me. I gotta do it that way. I follow, and we watch a lot of cooking shows. And it, dry, it gives me anxiety when I see the like, professional chefs who are just like, little of this, little of this, little of this. And I'm like, ah, how do you know that? Um, but so if you're like me and following the recipe is like, you, you gotta you know, do that, you might make a good priest because um, they, they had to follow a specific recipe. And, uh, and it was made of all these things. And one of the things, one of the primary ingredients to the incense comes from the resin the gummy resin of a Boswellia tree. And these trees are only found in the southern peninsula of Arabia. Now, tracking with me, any guesses on what that resin is called? Frankincense. Hmm. The, the very ingredient that provides presence and protection was a gift given to the child Jesus. And if you're following in Exodus and you're reading, you know, chapter um, uh, uh, 29 and, and getting to chapter 30, you're going to find some other interesting connections. You see this altar of incense had to be covered in gold. And after it was covered in gold and dedicated, they would take the oil, anointing oil, made out of myrrh to consecrate it before God. And then the ingredients to make the incense was made out of frankincense. That's like a mic drop moment right there. 
It's like the gifts of the wise men. They're trying to communicate or foreshadow Jesus as the altar of incense. Jesus is this thing that's spoken about in the tabernacle, this thing that provides presence and access to the divine through our prayers and protection so that we can come to him. Come on now. You see, I think Matthew believes this. I think that's why Matthew includes this information. And why don't the other gospel writers tell us about this? Well, because their audience wasn't Jewish primarily. They're writing to a Gentile Roman community, and that, that, this, this would have been lost on them. But, but, but Matthew, he's writing to his, his fellow countrymen, his, Jewish, his fellow Jewish people, and he's giving them context that they would have went, what? Are you saying that Jesus is the altar of incense? And Matthew goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now check this out. In Matthew chapter 27, it gets even better. Because in Matthew chapter 7, we have Jesus in his last breaths. His last breath. And he gives up his spirit. And this is what it says, Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. Then Jesus shouted out again and released his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where was the altar of incense? On the outside, one side of the curtain. And what was on the other side of the curtain? The Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God. And Matthew goes, hey, look, you remember when I told you what the gifts were that they brought? They were foreshadowing what Jesus is. He stands in front of the curtain. And he says, no more. We are not keeping you back. And he rips it in two. Like, this is all interconnected with each other. That's why the writer of Hebrews can make a statement like this. He says, so then let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. The writer of Hebrews understands this. The veil's gone. So now through the person of Jesus, we can actually access the throne of God. Jesus is the altar of incense who, like a priest, takes our prayers to the Father and like a king, protects us from death. He gives us access. And I love the beauty of the Christmas story through the lens of the wise men is that we can all now come before the Creator with confidence, hope. that these gifts are foreshadowing what Jesus will become for us. And he tear, tears the veil in two, and we now have access to the divine. He, Jesus, is the sweet aroma of presence and access. Presence to the creator, God, access to him, through him. Through him. This is why Jesus makes very challenging statements like no one can come to the Father but through me. He's going, I am your access. I am the altar of incense that by which you can approach the throne of God. So what does this mean for us? How do we, how do we take this home in our own lives and wrap our minds around this idea of, wait, Jesus, priest, priest king, and, and probably there's all sorts of connections that your brain is trying to make right now of like, what, what about this? And what about, okay, oh, that's interesting, right? And, and, and you know, this connection to, to, the, to the tabernacle and the altar of incense, look, there's no 
you can't read anywhere that like what I'm saying is right. Okay, like there's no like biblical like, oh, and this is what they thought. Uh, we don't know. But boy, isn't it a beautiful, beautiful picture. When we come to Jesus, through him, he gives us access to the creator God. The one who created all things and is in all things. Jesus gives us access. So here's a couple things. One, Jesus is the priest king through which you see and experience the divine. Jesus is the priest king. And here, here's the challenge for some of us is that some of us, we haven't put our trust in that. Or we don't trust it. And maybe life has, has beaten you down to a point where you're like, I'm not sure I'm at a place where I'm ready to trust that, believe that. And I want to encourage you. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is saying, come to me, and through me you will find shalom rest and peace in the presence of the good creator God. And so the question is, is that can we trust him? Can we come to Jesus and trust him as our priest king? Number two, the gift of frankincense reminds us that God hears our prayers. As the aroma arises to God. He hears your prayers. He hears you and God's presence is accessible through Jesus that when you come to Jesus you are actually in the presence of God you can come to Jesus and the question is are you ready to come to Jesus now here's the most beautiful thing about all of this I think because we're talking about are you going to come are you are you are you ready to come to Jesus are you ready to come and accept and put your trust in him? Are you ready? And the beautiful thing is that he's not as far as you may think. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 says this, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. You are not far. Why? He's already at the door. He's already taken the first steps towards you. He's already made the moves to get close to you and he's standing at the door and he's knocking. He's saying, please, let me in. I'm here. I want to give you rest. I want to give you life and life more abundantly when you trust in me. And all we have to do, all we have to do is open that door. Yeah. Come on in, Jesus. I'm not perfect. I made a lot of mistakes. Jesus goes, yeah, yeah. I know. But I'm here. I'm here. And I know those mistakes may make, may make you think you're disqualified to be in the presence of God. And he goes, it kind of does. But that's why I'm here. I'm your protection. I stand at the door of your heart. Are you ready to come to Jesus?
as we get ready for communion, we'll invite up our leaders. They're going to pass out some communion. If you did not grab elements on your way in, please uh, lift your hand. Let, let them know uh, that you need some, and they'll, they'll make sure you get some. But I want us to wrestle for a second here. The reality of Jesus is our priest king. What does that mean for you? Does that mean you need to put your trust in him? And you're ready to surrender to him and trust him as your priest king? Or maybe, maybe you just need to, to come to Jesus this season in that he has not been a priority in your life. Maybe he's not been a priority this season. Maybe, maybe all the distractions of work and family and holiday parties and, and shopping has just taken your heart and your mind out of the reality that Jesus has come. And like John chapter 1 says, he comes to dwell in our midst. Do you know what that word dwell means in, in, in the Greek? Tabernacle. Like that's another mic drop. Jesus comes to tabernacle with us. <clears throat> He's here. He's here. Let's wrestle with, are we ready to come to him? Are we ready to come to him? What does that look like? Give you a few minutes to, to ponder that.